Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Great Monday to you. Welcome in to another brand new episode of Sports Court. And as always, I'd like to thank you for listening. However, and wherever you may be listening, tons to dive into today. What a crazy weekend, right? I'm going to try to recap as much of it as I can today. And you all know what we like to do on Tuesdays. Episode 15 of Red Zone will be at your disposal on tomorrow, where we will recap Monday Night Football. And we're also going to dive into some more of the craziness that unfolded this past weekend. But before I dive into any of that, hopefully you're having an amazing Monday. Looking forward to the week ahead just as much as I am. And also, before I get started with today's show, for those of you that know, I was telling you guys at the beginning of the month that this was a very, very special month for me. And it's a special month for me. And today's a very special day for me for the simple fact that I have reached another year of life. Today is my birthday. I am... You know, I'm not ashamed of my age. I'm not that old in some people's minds. I am 23 years old and I'm blessed to see another year, blessed to see another birthday. So for all of you out there that may have been wanting to know when my birthday actually was, today is the day. And to all of you out there that have wished me a happy birthday, I thank you so much for that. You don't know how much that means to me. But I think about today. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I know you guys come here for sports and we're going to dive into it momentarily. But today is a very, very somber day as well for the simple fact that one of the more influential people in my life is no longer here to celebrate my birthdays with me. And of course, I'm talking about my late mother, but I know that she is looking down on me smiling today. As I have reached another birthday in my life and hopefully I have many, many more birthdays to go or to come. So I just am very, very blessed to be talking to you today. Very, very blessed that I have lived to see another birthday. So with that being stated, ladies and gentlemen, it is time to dive into the show today. And before I do it, I want to set it up for you first. Then we're going to dive into it. I know I've been stalling the show, but I want to make sure that we have everything in context so you know what you're going to consume today. So I have an opening show ramble coming up momentarily. That will be followed by my opening thoughts segment. We're going to recap as much college football and NFL action as we can. And we're also going to discuss the state of Clemson football. 
I want to give you the latest on the Jim Harbaugh slash Michigan investigation. There are still some very troubling things going on in Chicago right now with the Bulls. And I'm also going to give you an unpopular opinion, a bold prediction. And we're going to wrap it up today with a final verdict, which you will receive at the conclusion of today's show. So if that sounds like a plan, stick around. If it doesn't sound like a plan, just come back tomorrow for episode 15 of Red Zone. It's shorter. We don't really go into the prolonged conversations like we do here. So if you're looking for something quicker, faster, so that you can get out and enjoy your day, that's where Red Zone comes in. So just stick around for tomorrow's edition of Red Zone, which will be, once again, episode number 15. Now, I told you guys when we did our predictions for NFL Week 8 on yesterday that I wanted to have a bounce back week. And I know a lot of you, when you listened to that episode yesterday, in the back of your mind, you wanted to make sure that that episode came out before the game started. And I told you guys at the very beginning of that episode that we did record that before the games kicked off. The only game that had been played up to that point was the Thursday night game that featured the Tampa Bay Buccaneers taking on the Buffalo Bills, which I predicted that the Bills were going to win. So that was the only game that took place. I told you guys that I wanted to have a very, very commendable and respectable week. And we've done that and then some. I'm looking at my sheet right now, guys, and we went 12 and 3 this week predicting these games. And here's the craziest part about all of this. We had a very, very strong week in the two areas where I thought we were going to have a very lackluster week. And of course, I'm talking about my questionable picks and my hard to gauge picks. Just listen to this, guys. My questionable picks, we went four and oh. In my hard to gauge picks, we went four and one. And right now, currently, we are sitting at three and two as far as my safe picks are concerned. I'm still waiting for that Lions Raiders game to take place tonight to see if we will finish the week as far as safe picks are concerned, three and three or four and two. But even if we lose that game tonight, as far as prediction is concerned, we have had a very, very, very successful week predicting these games. And I'm just feeling it right now. I am in a state of overall cloud nineness right now, if that's a phrase that I can use, because speaking something into existence, I know a lot of times we get to the point where we say, if I speak something into existence, what's the likelihood that it's going to happen? But I've been speaking it into existence for you guys and to you guys that we're going to come back and have a bounce back week. And that's exactly what we've done. So week eight is or has been rather a very, very successful week as far as NFL predictions are concerned. So just wanted to throw that out for you guys at the top of the show. Now it is time for my opening show ramble for the week. And for those of you that may be new, first of all, welcome. Second of all, our opening show ramble is where I set the tone for the week of shows that we're about to produce for you guys. This is just sort of like therapy for me, where I come on here and I talk about things that have been on my chest for quite some time. Sometimes it's sports related. Sometimes it's not sports related. It's just something that I'm pretty sure a lot of you out there in the world can attest to as I speak it to you guys on a Monday. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and get this opening show ramble situated and out the way. And I want to start with something that we all heard about last week. If you are part of the social media sphere or if you know someone that's a part of the social media sphere, you've heard about this. So last week, there was a big conversation in pop culture about this list that was put out over social media that was created by a group of women as to where a guy can't take a woman on their first date. And the list was compiled of 15 different places where women would not like their guy to take them on the first date. 
And some of the restaurants and some of the places on that list were just outrageous. So that's where my problem comes in at. That quote unquote first date list is crazy. And I will say this. We all helped her or those ladies create that list. And I'll explain. We helped them create that list because of the materialistic society that we live in right now, where everything always has to be situated around money. Now, I know we've all heard the saying, you can make more money, but you can't make more time. And a lot of people today are so fixated upon the fact of wanting to have more money than they know what to spend or know what to do with. And it just makes you wonder at the end of the day, how many of us with our materialistic prowess that we happen to have helped these ladies create this list? Now, I know a lot of people were saying to themselves once they saw that list that these women are crazy. I wouldn't mind going to an Olive Garden. I wouldn't mind going to an Applebee's. I wouldn't mind going to the movies. I wouldn't mind going to church for a first date. But in some shape, fashion or form, we all helped create that list because of the certain priorities that we hold ourselves to and we hold others to in the society that we live in presently. And I don't want to disrespect any ladies out there, but I know that what I'm about to say, a lot of fellas can agree with. We live in a place now or we live in a time now where if you don't have yourself together financially, there's not going to be a large contingent group of ladies out there that's willing to go on a date with you because we live in a time now where you have to be already made or established before anybody would want to have anything to do with you. And this is just not a lady to male perspective. This could also be flipped and it could be a male to female perspective where most guys don't want to date a lady or a woman who doesn't have herself together. Now, that's a whole different conversation for another day. That's something that I could get into if I started another podcast about pop culture and all that. But you guys come here for sports and we're going to get into it. But that first date list, I've been waiting to talk to you guys about that. I was going to discuss it on Friday's show, but then I pushed it back for today's show. But once again, that list is crazy. And in some shape, fashion or form, we all helped her create that list. Or we all help them create that list. We're in that time of year where there's a certain craze that's going around that I've never become a fan of. And of course, I'm talking about the pumpkin spice craze. If you go in your local grocery store right now, you will see nearly everything on the seasonal aisle consistent of pumpkin spice. You have pumpkin spice coffee creamers, pumpkin spice candy, pumpkin spice cookies. You even go to Starbucks right now and they have a pumpkin spice drink. You go to Wendy's, if I'm not mistaken, they have a pumpkin spice frosty. I've never been the type of person that has sat in front of someone and said, you know what? I like pumpkin spice. I think it is a very good flavor. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're someone that's listening to my voice right now and you like pumpkin spice, by all means, continue to do you. It's a free country. Do what you like. But I was just never one of those people that just sat around saying, you know what would be good right now? Some pumpkin spice flavored coffee. And of course, being in the grocery slash retail business, you see this trend every single year where people come in asking for particular things that are pumpkin spice related. So I've never been a big pumpkin spice guy. And I guess some of you would say, well, have you even had pumpkin spice flavored stuff before foods before? And to sum it up for you, I've never had pumpkin spice flavored food or anything of that sort. So I guess you may be saying to yourself, well, until you try it, don't knock it. That old phrase that a lot of people don't use anymore. Don't knock it to your tribe. I may try it before it goes out of season. And then I'll come back on here and tell you guys if I enjoyed it or not. Something that I don't enjoy going in Walmart and not being able to use Apple Pay. Let me explain something to you. 
for all of my listeners out there that work at Walmart, first of all, I just want to thank you. I know sometimes we've gotten to a place where we don't like to thank people who work in the nine to five space of life. So to all of my nine to fivers out there, I thank you for your dedicated work that you do each and every day that you go to work. I'm not like most people. I'm not going to berate you because you choose to work a nine to five. That's not in me. I was raised with better morals and principles than that. So I'm not going to disrespect or trash anyone who works a nine to five. If you enjoy your job, that's all that matters at the end of the day. And if your job or if you enjoy your job where you can make people's day better, then by all means, that's an added plus, especially in this very hectic society that we live in right now. But if you go in Walmart, you don't have the option to use Apple Pay. And Walmart is a multi-billion dollar business. To add a little context to that, remember when the Walden Penner family bought the Broncos a few years ago? They spent billions to acquire that team. And yet you can't spend a couple of millions of dollars to make sure all of your stores can be able to accept Apple Pay as a form of payment. Something has to be done there. Someone needs to get on that phone with that Walden Penner family and ask them, hey, nearly every other store in the world right now or in the developed world, they're able to use Apple Pay. Why are you guys behind the times? To make this a little bit more interesting, you can go on a gas station right now and they don't even have to be the most prosperous of gas stations in your town and they accept apple pay but yet walmart arguably the biggest retail giant in the united states right now they don't accept apple pay not even samsung pay android pay whatever you like to call it it's just a very gross crime if you want to put it that way that walmart doesn't accept apple pay so something has to be done with that something also has to be done with the ncis franchise When the first NCIS came out in the early 2000s, I was a fan. Then when NCIS shifted to Los Angeles, I became an even bigger fan because I liked it that cast. We also saw NCIS New Orleans, NCIS Hawaii, and next month we're going to see NCIS Sydney as they take their show on the road down under to Australia. I'll just put it to you bluntly. NCIS needs to stop adding cities. If anything, you should bring back NCIS Los Angeles because the way in which that went off the air earlier this year, I had a lot of problems with. A lot of the big questions that remained from the storyline of NCIS Los Angeles were never answered. So instead of adding new cities to the NCIS franchise, why not go back and tie up some loose ends from some of the original franchises that you already have? That's my problem. Stop adding cities. And speaking of a city, the city of San Antonio right now, they are having themselves a blast with Victor Wimbanyama being in town playing for their hometown Spurs. But just like with the Taylor Swift hype in the NFL, the Victor Wimbanyama hype in the NBA is getting to a point where it's out of hand. Each and everything that Victor Wimbanyama does, we act like we've never seen before or the NBA acts like they've never seen it done before. The NBA is a sport where tall and gigantic players can come in and leave their mark on the game. So Victor Wembanyama is not the first tall, big guy to come into the NBA and do some of the things that the NBA swears is a first. Now, do I think Victor Wembanyama one day is going to turn out to be a perennial all-star, maybe an all-NBA player? I do believe that that's in his future. But for right now, let's see how this can develop over the course of an 82-game season as opposed to falling in love with this thing the first couple of games of the season. That's all I'm saying. And finally, 
my Florida Gators, you cannot escape what I'm about to say. And you cannot escape being in the opening show round before this week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm pretty sure a lot of you guys on Saturday afternoon watched the Georgia Bulldogs dismantle the Florida Gators. In a matchup that I knew the Florida Gators would not win. Now, I did tell you guys on Friday that it would have been nice to see if Billy Napier could outcoach Kirby Smart, which did not happen. Kirby Smart ran circles around Billy Napier and Armstrong, the defensive coordinator for the Gates. There was a point in the game where Florida had the ball fourth and one, and they needed a yard to keep their drive going. And if they didn't get that yard, Georgia was going to get the football via turnover or downs in a very, very plus spot of the football field. So you get up to the line of scrimmage and Graham Mertz gets under center. It looks like it's going to be a quarterback sneak or what the Philadelphia Eagles have made so successful, the tush push, where the running back just gets behind the quarterback, pushes him over the line, and it would be a first down. Instead of that happening, I don't know what the hell Billy Napier was trying to do there, but Graham Mertz allowed the ball to go under him to the running back And instead of the running back getting the first down, he actually lost yardage. And that resulted in Georgia getting the ball back. And I think they scored on that drive as well. So my simple question that I have for Florida and Billy Napier, what was that? Why not just snap the ball directly to Graham Mertz and see can he propel himself forward to get the first down? That was a very, very disastrous play call. And yet you guys were down big before that play even happened, before the ball was even snapped. So my question for Billy Napier is that why were you trying to get cute in that spot? You guys were already down. You should have taken what was in front of you, let Graham Mertz try to get the first down. And if you needed the running back to push him over the line, that would have been more beneficial than ultimately what you did decide to call. But yes, Florida lost the game. Who's surprised? And Georgia is Georgia. I mean, if you look at Georgia right now, They are better this season, I believe, than they were last season. And I know some of you may be saying, how is how can you be saying that? I just when you look at Georgia, it seems as though Georgia's faster this season. It seems as though they're able to wrap up and tackle better this season than they were last season. And if they do go on to three peat and be the first team since Minnesota in the 30s to three peat as national champs, I think we're going to look back at the 2023 edition of the Georgia Bulldogs. And we are going to say that they were the better team of the three that went on to win the national championship. And that was my opening show ramble for this week. 
Hope you guys got something out of it. Hope you guys kind of agreed with some of the things that I had to say in the ramble. Before I get into my opening thoughts for today, I want to shout out a few cities, a few states that consumes sports court the most. Of course, all of my guys out there in Arizona, thank you for continuing to listen to the show. Michigan, you guys have been showing up in a big way, and I thank you for that. And Tennessee, I cannot thank you guys enough for continuing to listen to the show. You guys don't know how much that means to me to continue to produce these episodes for you guys. And just knowing that you guys find what I'm talking about to be interesting, that's a big added plus for me to continue making this content for you guys. And I'm not forgetting the entire country that has listened so far. We've had California tune in from time to time. We've had Texas tune in from time to time. Florida, Georgia, New York. We've had nearly all 50 states partake in sports court. And the only thing I ask of you guys is to leave us a rating, follow the podcast channel, And don't forget to tell family and friends about the amazing things that we're doing on our pod so that they can become a part of the journey as well. Because at the end of the day, our number one goal still remains to become one of the biggest sports news podcasts within the podcast world. And as long as you guys continue to spread the word, I think we can and we will reach that goal sooner rather than later. And with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for my opening thoughts for today and they will commence right now. So we've been talking about this for quite some time. And when I've talked to you guys about this in the past, I brought it up from a place of not anger, but from a place of just wanting you guys to understand that all things don't work out for the greater good at the end of the day. And of course, I'm talking about none other than Josh McDaniels and his very disastrous tenure so far as Las Vegas Raiders head football coach. If you look at the Raiders right now, they're three and four. And it doesn't seem like they're going anywhere fast. And I know I know what you may be saying. Well, we've seen them the past few weeks beat the Patriots and we've seen them beat the Green Bay Packers. But you have to ask yourself at the end of the day, what does those wins say about the Raiders? I've looked at both of those wins and I've gone back and I've thought about this in my head. Those wins say more about the opposition than they do the Raiders. The Raiders haven't been anything to watch offensively. And you could arguably say that their defense is the strongest point of the football team that keeps them competitive long enough in games to mount any serious type of comeback when they are down and out. So, of course, it wouldn't be a Raiders season without some type of dysfunction. It wouldn't be a Raiders season without someone within that facility becoming disgruntled. We saw it earlier this season with Devontae Adams, and we've also seen it from the guys like Max Crosby, Josh Jacobs. We've seen it from nearly all of the star players on the Raiders who voiced some type of frustration with the direction in which this team is going. We also saw earlier this season fans get on Mark Davis at a Chargers game, basically telling him that he needs to get off of his ass and fire Josh McDaniels because this has been a very disastrous tenure for McDaniels as the Raiders head coach. But what is one thing that I've always told you guys? The one thing that I've continuously tried to instill in you guys is that when problems arise, Nine times out of 10, there were warning signs that preceded the problem that a lot of people may have missed out on. But the warning signs as it pertains to Josh McDaniels are not hard to miss out on. Josh McDaniels has been a head coach before. We all remember when he was the head coach of the Denver Broncos and they really did nothing of note during his time. There, The only notable thing that Josh McDaniels accomplished during his time as the Broncos head coach 
was to get the team investigated by the NFL for videotaping while they were over in London playing an international game. Besides that, Josh McDaniels and the Broncos did nothing. They did go 8-8 eight eight his first season, but after going 3-9 and nine, the following season, he was immediately fired. So Josh McDaniels is the classic case of being a good coordinator, but not a good head coach. And we're seeing that slowly but surely play out for a lot of other franchises in the NFL that goes out and try to hire these young offensive minded coordinators to become their head coach. And what we find out in the process is that a lot of these guys are good coordinators, not good coaches, whether that's offensively or defensively. So why do I bring up Josh McDaniels to lead off a show today? I bring up Josh McDaniels because last week we found out some very disturbing information coming from that Raiders facility. We found out that there was some anonymous Raiders players that had gone to the media to kind of give their spiel about what goes on in the facility now that Josh McDaniels is the head coach and now that this season seems as though it's lost or it's dead on arrival. So last week on X, I remember correctly, this was last Wednesday. There were some various quotes that was given to the media by some anonymous Raiders players that kind of gave you a sense of what's truly going on behind closed doors in that facility. And here's some of the quotes that was given to the media. The first one, we have to go in and watch film and listen to the coaches blame us again for the loss. So after that, I'll be good. The next quote, our offense is so old school and not up to date. If you watch the best offenses in the NFL, like the Niners, the Eagles and the Dolphins, they all use the entire field and use every player they have and are creative AF, not like us. They have fun playing ball for us. It's a job. The next one. They've been running the same shit for 20 years now, and they're too hard headed to change. That's why we lose. Finally, been saying it since last season. It's hard to win when you're too damn predictable. It's the worst feeling on offense when the defense calls out your plays and knows what you're running. Chicago did that constantly End the quote. So one thing we know for certain, if those quotes don't tell you anything, is that the Raiders right now are a dysfunctional mess offensively. And let's not even just look at this season. Let's go back to last season. The Raiders season last year was so bad that you had Baker Mayfield and the Rams beat the Raiders after Baker Mayfield had only been a Ram for 48 hours. Then you lose to Jeff Saturday in the Indianapolis Colts. And we found out later that Jeff Saturday was not qualified at all to be an NFL head coach. Then you come into this season and you lose to Tyson Baguette and the Chicago Bears, who may still be trying to tank for Caleb Williams next April. The Raiders are a mess, but it only becomes full scale when you realize that the owner in charge of this team, Mark Davis himself, is a mess. I'm not talking about personally. I'm talking about on the football side of things. As long as Mark Davis allows this team to be stuck in mediocrity, then there's no way that change will be brought to this Raiders franchise. This was one of those franchises that back in the day, They were one of the most feared and most respected teams in all of the NFL. They won Super Bowls. They were in the AFC Championship game. They had great players. Not to say that they don't have great players now, but when you look at the Raiders teams from back then as compared to now, you don't really see that physicality on a week-by-week basis. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that once you lose your locker room as a head coach, it's going to be very hard to go out there and play 100% when it's time to go out there on Sunday afternoons. And this is exactly what Josh McDaniels is going through right now. Josh McDaniels, whether he wants to admit it or not, has lost his locker room. Because when you have guys coming out saying that your offense is so damn predictable that the opposing team can call out your plays before you even run them, that says a lot about the state of your football team at the present moment. 
So after all those comments were made on Wednesday, what did Josh McDaniels and his coaching staff do to address any lingering frustrations in that locker room? After Thursday's meeting, he allowed the team to open up the floor and anyone who had any problems with anything that has gone on for them this far, thus far this season could get up in front of the team and address their frustrations. Devontae Adams got up and spoke. Max Crosby got up and spoke. Josh Jacobs got up and spoke. And so did a lot of other players from all different facets of the team. All got up and gave their piece about this dysfunctional mess in Las Vegas right now. Now, we can sum this up very easily. And we can sum it up by using one phrase. Josh McDaniels isn't the guy. And Mark Davis should know that by now. Mark Davis, if he still believes that Josh McDaniels can round the corner and turn this thing around, he is sorely and sadly mistaken. Because Josh McDaniels should have never received another opportunity to be an NFL head coach after that debacle that he pulled a few years ago after Super Bowl 52. You guys remember that? After Super Bowl 52, a Super Bowl in which the Patriots lost to the Philadelphia Eagles, he decided to accept the Indianapolis Colts head coaching job. And then a few days after accepting the job, putting his roster together, he decided to do a complete 180 and decided not to take the job. And what happened after that? All of those coaches that he had assembled together to be on his staff, they had to go and find themselves another job. And Josh McDaniel's agent decided to terminate his contract with McDaniel's for that simple reason. Now, if you're the Colts, I'm pretty sure you're glad that you didn't get McDaniel's. And if you're the Raiders right now, or if you're a Raider fan, I'm pretty sure you're saying to yourself, I wish we didn't get McDaniel's because this guy has been an utter failure as an NFL head coach. Now, granted, three and four isn't the worst record in the NFL right now. The worst record in the league right now belongs to the Carolina Panthers. They're one and six. And you guys know how I feel about Frank Reich, so we don't even have to rehash that. But if you are a team like the Raiders, with all of this great talent that you have, and you brought in Jimmy G after releasing Derek Carr, something has to be done to show the fan base that you're at least trying to commit to winning. But once the fan base can sense that you don't give a damn about winning, they don't give a damn about coming to the games. That's where we're at right now with this whole Raider fiasco. Once you start showing that you care about winning, then the fans will start caring about showing up. Now, of course, you're in Vegas, so the fans are going to come no matter what because Vegas is a very attractive city to be in, especially if you want to go and do some things that you wouldn't normally do at home because once the saying goes, once what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But to sum this all up, ladies and gentlemen, this is an exact personification about why coaches like Josh McDaniels make better coordinators than they do head coaches because they don't understand how to have their message be addressed to all facets of the team. Josh McDaniels is an offensive-minded guy. And it's easy when you're in New England and you're going about it the Patriot way that Bill Belichick has instilled up there, and you can do certain things in New England that you can't do around the league. You hear former players all the time who've played for the Patriots, they come out and say, the way in which Bill Belichick and that coaching staff treated us in New England, a lot of other players throughout the league wouldn't have been able to accept that. They wouldn't have known how to handle that. And yet Josh McDaniels felt as though I can take the Patriot way, bring it to Las Vegas, and these players will still react to it the same way that those Patriot players did. It doesn't work that way. And you see how the Patriot way is slowly but surely starting to unravel in Foxborough now. There is no Patriot way no more. There is no Bill Belichick using what he has 
defensively to stop what you can do well def- offensively. Excuse me. There's no more of that. We saw what Tyreek Hill did yesterday to the Patriots. He and Jalen Waddle went over 100 yards receiving. But Josh McDaniels isn't head coach material. And I'm sad to say this, but I'm not at the same time. When the Raiders finally decides to fire Josh McDaniels, he will never get another head coaching job in the NFL. That's just the way it is. Because we've seen two different examples now as to why you can't trust McDaniels with your team. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And going back to what I said earlier, the Indianapolis Colts fiasco should have been enough to dissuade any NFL team from wanting to bring in Josh McDaniels to be their head coach. But this is what happens when you see someone, a bright young offensive mind like McDaniels himself happens to be, and you are a team that's trying to find a spark offensively, and you say to yourself, well, maybe if we bring this guy in, we can finally round the corner offensively. Doesn't always work that way. And yet the Raiders, here they go again. 20 years of mediocrity. And it seems like that curse is going to continue for many years to come until Mark Davis finally realizes that it's time for him to bring in a competent head coach and to get rid of these coordinators who aren't good head coaches like Josh McDaniels. And that will conclude my opening thoughts for today. So I told you guys at the top of the show today that this has been a very, very wild weekend, or what we saw this weekend has been very, very wild. I want to start with some college football action. And of course, I have to start with the game that was arguably the biggest game of the SEC weekend. Georgia, Florida in Jacksonville. 43 to 20 was the final. There is something that needs to be said about Florida that I don't think a lot of people are willing to say. For the past two years now, Florida has scored exactly 20 points against Georgia. But yet Georgia always comes out on top. I told you guys on Friday when I was doing the previews for college football week number eight, I told you guys that, or week number nine rather, I told you guys that I wanted to see Georgia try to respond to losing Brock Bowers because we all knew coming into this game and from the vast sample size of their season so far that Brock Bowers was the Georgia offense. What happened when they needed to come back and beat Auburn a couple of weeks ago in Jordan-Hare? Brock Bowers and Carson Beck connected, and that's what won them the game. What happened when they needed to come back and beat South Carolina? Carson Beck to Brock Bowers was the answer. So you knew coming into this game that Mike Bobo, the offensive coordinator, was going to be talking to Carson Beck to figure out what could we use 
to supplement the loss of Brock Bowers. And I said when we were doing the preview that Georgia was going to need to run the football like we've never seen them run the football before. And I said for the simple fact, bringing that back into the equation, that you can run the football on Florida's defense because we've already seen Kentucky do it before. Kentucky, as a team a couple of weeks ago, ran the football for well over 300 yards. And one of their running backs had 200 yards himself, and that was in the first half. So we knew coming into the game that you could easily run the football on the Florida Gators. And that's exactly what Georgia decided to do. As a team, they collected over 170 yards of rushing offense. But that wasn't even the biggest story of the game. I think we finally saw the coming out party for Carson Beck as Georgia's starting quarterback. He was 19 of 28, 315 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. Now, listening to that number, 315, you may be wondering to yourself, no Brock Bowers and the receiving room isn't really that great. How did he manage to do this? Well, you had guys like Ladd McConkie step up and do their part for this Georgia offense. Six catches, seven targets, 135 yards, and a touchdown. This is why Georgia right now is the prohibited favorite to make it back to the national championship. Because even when things don't seem to be going in their favor, losing Brock Bowers, for an example, they still find a way to incorporate other areas of their team to supplement what they don't have. That's why they are one of the more prolific teams in the sport right now. Because Kirby and his coaching staff, they can look at their roster and say to themselves, okay, we need this guy to step up. We need this guy to step up. We need our defense to step up. And we're also going to need to be able to rely upon our run game to supplement what we don't have as far as productivity is concerned from Brock Bowers. Now, if you're Florida, on the other hand, Graham Mertz, whether you want to believe it or not, has been playing some very, very good football these past couple of weeks. And in this game on Saturday, he was 25 of 34, 230 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. The only problem is, once again, their defense. You know, when I was watching this game and the way in which Florida was at first going up and down the field, because if you go back to their first drive of the game, Florida looked as though they were just going to run away with this. They went up and down the field that first drive on Georgia's defense, and I thought to myself, "Uh uh-oh, we may see a pretty competitive game here. And this is what ultimately happened as far as the scoring was concerned after Florida scored that opening drive touchdown. Georgia kicked the field goal, passing touchdown, rushing touchdown, rushing touchdown, safety, field goal, passing touchdown, and it was 12 minutes and 29 seconds into the fourth quarter until Florida scored another touchdown. With 12 minutes and 29 seconds left in the entire game, that's when Florida decided to get back in on the action. And then they scored a rushing touchdown with a minute and 20 seconds left in the game. But once again, that was Georgia in prevent defense. They weren't really concerned about giving up that touchdown because they knew that they already had the game won. Now, I will say this because I think it needs to be said. No one truly expected Florida to win this game. I know that there were a lot of national sports media types that tried to coax you into believing that Florida may have stood a chance in this game. But realistically, you knew that Georgia was the better team way before 2.30 p.m. got here on Saturday afternoon. We all knew that Georgia was going to come in and dominate, but I didn't think that they were going to dominate with Carson Beck throwing for over 300 yards. I thought that they were going to chew up the time of possession. 
They were going to run the football and they were going to try to make sure that Carson Beck didn't make the big mistake. And if you look at time of possession, 33 to 26 was the time of possession battle. So it wasn't like Georgia just ran away with it. Georgia did more with their opportunities than Florida did with theirs. Hence the reason why I brought up in the opening show ramble that fourth down call that Billy Napier decided to make where the running back got the ball instead of Graham Mertz and he didn't pick up the first down or the yard needed to get the first down. And here's another thing. When you look at this Georgia-Florida rivalry, with the lone exception of 2000, I want to say 2019 and 2016. I could be dead wrong about that. But seven of the last nine games in this rivalry, Georgia have won. That tells you about the proverbial pendulum swing that's been going on in this rivalry. Because at one point, Florida dominated this rivalry. When Steve Spurrier was the head coach and Ray Goff was the head coach for Georgia, Spurrier and Florida dominated this rivalry. And then as the turn of the century got here, and as Georgia got better under Mark Richt, they started to capitalize upon their success. And then when Herb was hired at Florida, they took a few of these matchups in the mid-2000s. And then when Herb left to go and do whatever he did until he took the Ohio State job, once again, you had Georgia take their shots. And then when Mullen came in, they won one. So what I'm saying is that Georgia right now, they're doing the most with their opportunities. Whereas Florida, this game just exposed more and more problems that they have as a team. That's all I'm saying. Their defense isn't that great. And we should have known that coming into the game because they allowed South Carolina to hang around. And Texas A&M easily took care of South Carolina on Saturday in College Station. So I think it's pretty safe to say that the same version of Florida that we saw go up to Lexington a couple of weeks ago and get their ass kicked was the same version of Florida that we saw on Saturday when they took on the top rated team in the country. So I don't know what to say about Florida. I'm, I'm just at a loss for words as I think about that program. And it still feels as though the road is presenting more and more problems for Billy Napier. And I know what you may be saying. This game was in Florida, but it was in Jacksonville. This game wasn't in the swamp. So it's, it's so at the end of the day, it's actually a road game for both sides. And the road still seems to be a big, big problem for Billy Napier. But being at home doesn't seem to be a big problem for Penn State. Penn State took care of Indiana on Saturday, 33-24. And I could say that Penn State won this game convincingly, but I'm not going to go there. I think both teams, Penn State and Ohio State, they're still trying to come off of the wear and tear that that physical matchup from last week imposed on both of them. I'm kind of upset with Indiana. Indiana at one point in this game had Penn State on the ropes until Penn State came back in the second quarter and made this a very, very competitive matchup. Now, it was 17-14 in favor of Penn State going into the locker room at half. But I just think to myself, going to the last touchdown that Penn State scored to put them over the top, if the Indiana defender would have played that ball better, we may be having a very different conversation about the outcome of that game. 
But that's the reason why the good teams, they're able to continue to be good teams. And that's the reason why teams like Indiana continues to be on the outside looking in. What has happened to Maryland? Maryland lost to Northwestern on Saturday. Maryland started the season 5-0. and Now, when they lost to Ohio State, no one really had a problem with that. That was customary. They were supposed to lose to Ohio State. But now they're in a very, very interesting spot. With four games left in the season, they only need one of those games to make it into a bowl. But it's the manner in which they've lost these past three games. Once again, they lost 37 to 17 against Ohio State. They lost 27 to 24 against Illinois. And they lost 33 27 to Northwestern. I think one thing is pretty obvious about Maryland right now. They're not clicking on all cylinders offensively like they were at the beginning of the year. And you would think to yourself, with Maryland being an offensive juggernaut the way that they are, they should easily be able to hang. 30 points on an opponent. But when you start playing the best of the best in Ohio State, you kind of start to see that number slither a little bit. Now, I don't understand why they couldn't hang 30 on Northwestern. Northwestern, we all know what they are right now. They're still going through the fallout, the continued fallout from Pat Fitzgerald getting fired. They're still dealing with the fallout of everything else that's going on on campus. But Maryland, to me, should easily be right now a team that's 7-1. and one. Once again, with the lone exception being that Ohio State loss. And Talia Tagovailoa didn't have a bad game. He was 30 of 47, 274 yards, three touchdowns, and one interception. But, as always, when you can't really generate on the road, it comes back to bite you at the end of the day. If this game would have took place at Maryland, we may be having a different conversation. But it's just very shocking to see a team that started the season 5-0 and fall as much as they've fallen in the past three weeks. And speaking of a team that really hasn't put it all together on one side of the ball, Auburn took care of Mississippi State 27-13. When Zach Arnett was promoted to head coach following the passing of Mike Leach, everybody thought to themselves that, well, at least they're bringing in a defensive-minded head coach. Their defense should be solid. And one thing we've seen from Mississippi State so far this season is that they're very inconsistent defensively. And when they went over there to play Auburn this past Saturday, they had Peyton Thorne looking like a five-star prospect. He was 20 of 26, 230 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. Now, a big reason why Mississippi State has also taken a step back is because you've gone from the air raid offense that Mike Leach brought to Starkville to now playing a more traditional offense now that Mike Leach is no longer the head coach at State. But I'm just really concerned with Mississippi State because, once again, you have a defensive guy in Zach Arnett as head coach, and that seems to be the one side of the football that you can't generate any type of consistency from. But we all know, Mississippi State fans, what they live for. They live for the final game of the regular season, the Egg Bowl against Ole Miss, and if they win that, that triumphs over anything that they did or didn't do throughout the course of the regular season. So I know that that's what they're waiting on there. And then you had Duke go to Louisville and do nothing. 23 to nothing was the final. Jeff Brom and Louisville gets another win. They're 7-1. They still keep their odds alive for reaching the ACC championship, although for them, the path is clear because North Carolina lost on Saturday. So for Louisville, they still have 
a very, very interesting road in front of them to make it to the ACC championship where they potentially may meet Florida State. Who knows how that's going to turn out? Riley Leonard did nothing to help Duke's calls on Saturday night. 9 of 23, 121 yards, no touchdowns, one interception. They didn't run the football all that great. Only 51 total yards of rushing offense, 202 yards total. They were 2 of 12 on third down. And Louisville wasn't great on third down either. They were 2 of 10. So this game really, when you look at it, the stat sheet doesn't do this game any justice. Louisville had two rushing touchdowns and three field goals. That's how they got to the 23 to nothing final score. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Then you look at the game of the weekend as far as the Pac-12 was concerned. Oregon and Utah. Oregon went to Utah and did something that they've not done there since 2016, and that's win a football game. 35-6 to became the final score of this game. And if you're Bo Nix right now, the only thing you did was go out there and add a little bit more validity to your Heisman case. 24-31, 248 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. Bryson Barnes was 15-29, 136 yards, no touchdowns, two interceptions. Utah didn't really run the football that great. 99 total rushing yards, 241 total yards overall, 5 of 15 on third down. 18 first downs for Oregon as compared to 13 for Utah. Just a good old-fashioned ass whooping that the Oregon Ducks gave to the Utah Utes. And now if you're Utah, you're 6-2. and two. There may be a chance that you won't make it back to the Pac-12 championship to defend your title. And if you're Oregon, you've just solidified a chance for your team to go to the Pac-12 championship where you may face off again against Washington when it's all said and done out there in Las Vegas, Nevada, the first weekend of December. Speaking of Washington, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to this, but there's something very disturbing that's been going on with Washington these past few weeks. Washington has not been able to put away talent as good as they've been doing at the beginning part of the season. Let me just put this into perspective for you guys. It all started back on September 30th when they faced off against Arizona. They beat those guys 31-24. Following week, they beat Oregon 36-33. They barely got past Arizona State last week 15-7, and they barely got past Stanford 42-33. Michael Penix, 21 of 38, 369 yards, four touchdowns, one pick. And I know what you may be saying to yourself. Well, at least they got past Stanford. They're still unbeaten as far as that conversation is concerned. But it should be alarming to any Husky fan the way in which they have to win these games, some similar to how USC has to win their games. You need to have Michael Penix put this team on his back each and every week and deliver these wins. And if he's not playing great, you'll get the same result that you got against Arizona State last week, 15-7. But when Michael Penix is playing tremendous football at the quarterback position, they can beat any team in the country. So it's kind of like this seesaw approach that you have to take with a team like Washington to truly determine which version of the team you're going to get on a given week. And the same could be said for Ohio State. 
So Ohio State took their show on the road to Madison, Wisconsin to play the Badgers. 24-10 became the final score of that one. Kyle McCord, I don't know how to really grade his performance. 17-26, 226 yards, two touchdowns, two picks. Luckily for Ohio State, they have arguably the best wide receiver in college football right now. And Marvin Harrison Jr., he had 11 targets, six catches, 123 yards, two touchdowns. Travion Henderson welcomed him back in the lineup. He had 24 carries, 162 yards, one touchdown, 6.8 yards to carry. And if you're Wisconsin, 6 of 16 on third down, 0 of 2 for on fourth down, 259 total yards compared to Ohio State's 407. This is the reason why at the beginning of the season, I didn't get behind all of that Luke Fickle, Phil Longo hype because I knew that it was going to take some time before Wisconsin finally reemerged and became the team that a lot of people wanted them to become. It's not me hating on Luke Fickle and Phil Longo. It's just me as a person getting tired of hearing all this preseason hype about certain teams. And then as the season trudges on, the hype starts to wear off because people realize that they weren't the same teams they were rooting for it like they were at the beginning of the season. The same could be said for what we saw out at Berkeley, California on Saturday afternoon. When USC went out there and played Cal, I'll just say this. Looking at USC, the same problems that have been on full display for them so far this season was on display for them on Saturday. 50-49 to 49 was the final of that game. I told you guys on Friday when we were previewing all of the college football top matchups for the weekend, I said that if you're Cal, I wanted to see could they go into the fourth quarter with this game being a competitive affair. And if I remember correctly, Cal went into the fourth quarter with the lead. And next thing you know, just like they have to do every week, they have to turn to Caleb Williams if you're Southern California and ask him, hey, um, Caleb, I know you've been doing a lot for the team. And I know that this season hasn't gone the way you wanted it to, but can you put this team on your back, take us to a win, and we'll thank you later. That's kind of the approach that you get each and every week from Southern California. I could sit here and say that this win was much needed for USC. As far as the win-loss column was concerned, it was a much-needed win. But I still am not convinced that USC is all the way back. And if you look at what remains for them on their schedule, they have Washington coming up, they're at Oregon, and they finish the regular season off against UCLA. None of those games are give me especially Washington and Oregon. USC could go on to lose both of those games and beat you and beat UCLA and end up with an 8 and 4 record. And that would be a far cry from where a lot of the preseason pundits had them at during the time. A lot of preseason pundits had USC as one of the teams that could ultimately make the playoff. And now USC is barely holding on to dear life about making it to one of the more prestigious bowl games. They may find themselves in the same bowl game that they were in last season, the Cotton Bowl, where they let Tulane come back and beat them in the final seconds of that game. But Caleb Williams in this game, 23 of 40, 369 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. Marshawn Lloyd, 17 carries, 115 yards, two touchdowns, 6.8 yards to carry. But the story of the game for UCLA was Jaden Ott, 21 carries, 153 yards, three touchdowns, 7.3 yards a carry. That's what he did. And if you look at these stats, 
This is the reason why I have such a hard time with Lincoln Riley still defending Alex Grinch's defensive coordinator. Just listen to this. Cal had 29 first downs. They were 6 of 14 on third down, 2 of 5 on fourth down, 235 total rushing yards, 292 total passing yards, 527 total yards of offense. Usually those are numbers that we see USC put up, not their opposition. Or in this case, yes, their opposition put those numbers up too because they don't have a defense. This is the reason why USC can't hang with the big boys in college football. This is the reason why each and every time in the lunchroom, they try to sit by the Georgias, Florida States, Ohio States, Michigans of the world. That's the reason why all the seats are taken. Because no one truly believes that USC belongs at the big boy table because they don't have a defense to back that up. And it shows each and every week why they're not allowed to sit at the big boy table. Until until Lincoln Riley lets his pride get out of the way and he fires Alex Grinch, it's going to be a continuous problem for them for years to come. And did you guys see what North or not North Carolina? I'll get to them, too. Did you guys see what Notre Dame did to Pitt? I know what you guys may be saying. Well, it is Pitt. But Penn State, not Penn State, Notre Dame hung 58 points on Pitt. See, here's the thing that I have to say about Notre Dame. This final score of that game was 58-7 to in favor of the Fighting Irish. Here's the thing. If Notre Dame didn't lose to Louisville and their only loss would have been against Ohio State, we may be having a very different conversation about the final outcome for Marcus Freeman and his Notre Dame fighting Irish. They may still be in the thick of the playoff conversation, not saying that they aren't right now. Who knows? They may be that two-loss team that makes it to the playoff because a lot of people have been predicting that a two-loss team can make it into the playoff. Who, who's to say that Notre Dame couldn't be that two-loss team that makes it? But it's just very, very odd for me to believe that we wouldn't be talking about Notre Dame more than we already are if they didn't have those two blemishes on their resume. But once again, no one truly expected them to beat Ohio State, although Notre Dame gave Ohio State a reason to stay in that game because their defense down the stretch allowed the Buckeyes to stay in that game. But if they didn't lose to Louisville, we'll be talking about them differently. They're on a two-game win streak right now, and guess who they have coming up next weekend? Clemson. They have to go to Clemson to beat the Tigers or to win or to play the Tigers. I may have just given you guys my prediction for that game. And then after that, they have Wake Forest and Stanford. You're trying to tell me that Notre Dame couldn't be a 10-win team by the time this is over with? Or at least a 9-win team in worst-case scenario? Once Marcus Freeman gets this team rolling at a consistent level and they can finally start to beat the big dogs in college football, I think we're finally going to see a different Notre Dame program than we've seen in the past few years. Until he gets over that hump and starts beating the best of the best in college football, there's always going to be those lingering questions in the back of fans' mind about one Marcus Freeman, but they did a great job against Pittsburgh. And that's not really saying much because Pittsburgh hasn't been anything of note so far this season. But I'll tell you something. Speaking of Pitt, remember earlier this offseason when Pat Narduzzi, the head coach up there, when he had all those things to say about Deion Sanders, the way he used the portal, all of that different stuff. 
Pat Narduzzi has done nothing with Pitt so far this season, and who knows? It may get to the point where frustration starts to set in amongst the administrators for the Pittsburgh Panthers, and they just decide, you know what? We may be better off going in another direction as far as a coach is concerned. And this is coming after, remember a few years ago when Pitt went on to win the ACC? And now they aren't even relevant in the ACC. But that just goes to show you how quickly the pendulum can swing in sports. And the final game that I want to touch on, and it's not really something I want to touch on, but it's just something I want to give my thoughts about. Did you guys see Georgia Tech beat North Carolina 46-42? to If you're North Carolina, a lot of people, and I read this after the game, a lot of people were saying to themselves, North Carolina was a fraudulent team anyway. Now they have two losses. And you just have to wonder to yourself out loud, were the first six games we saw from North Carolina, were they an embodiment of who this team was at the time, or were those games just flukish? Think about it. North Carolina in the past two games have lost to Virginia and Georgia Tech, arguably the two worst programs in the ACC. And yet North Carolina couldn't beat them. And Drake May didn't have a bad game if you want to go and look at this from a statistical standpoint. Drake May was 17-25, 310 yards through the air, two touchdowns, no picks. Haynes King was 23-30, of 30, 287 yards, four touchdowns, one interception. Now, this is the same Georgia Tech team that just a few weeks ago beat Miami. And Miami gave them an opportunity to come back in that game and beat them. I just don't get the ACC. The ACC right now is a very, very funny picture for me to try to piece together. Because we don't really know outside of Florida State and Louisville who are the best teams in that conference. Because we thought North Carolina could be in that conversation until they started losing. And Clemson... When the preseason was here, everybody thought that they were just going to magically pick up where they left off from a couple of seasons ago and return back to glory. And that hasn't been the case for them at all. So it has been a very, very wild weekend in college football this past weekend. So I want to stay with college football and I want to bring up my point that I just made to you guys. Clemson right now is four and four. This is their first time through eight games being four and four since 2010. In 2010, Clemson finished that season 6-7, and seven, and that seventh loss came in a bowl game lost in the Meineke Car Care Bowl. They haven't been great in ACC play. And since Dabo Sweeney made those comments about unloading some of the bandwagon, they're 0-2. They still have Notre Dame to play, Georgia Tech, North Carolina, and they finished the season in Columbia against South Carolina. So I think it's pretty safe to say that right now, Dabo Sweeney is not really having a great time being Clemson's football coach. And a lot of the times when you hear people talk about Clemson football, they're quick to bring up the fact that Dabo doesn't use the portal. He doesn't want to shell out NIL money, but I think it runs a little deeper than that. Now, we saw them lose this past Saturday night to NC State. And in that game, Kate Klubnick threw two interceptions. That's where I kind of want to preface my point around. It's easy to look at Clemson from 50,000 feet in the air and say that they don't have the talent necessary to compete at a high level because Dabo doesn't want to use the portal or NIL money. But I think it's also pretty abundant to say, in a nutshell, 
that another big reason why Clemson is not where they're supposed to be is because of the coaching. When Dabo Sweeney lost Tony Elliott, when he took over the Virginia job, a lot of people wondered in which direction was he going to go to find an offensive coordinator. Instead of going out into the open market trying to find an OC, he decided to hire from within and elevated Brandon Streeter to offensive coordinator. And Brandon Streeter was a disaster during his time as Clemson's OC. So he was relieved of his duties before this season started. And Clemson decided to go out and spend big money and bring in Garrett Riley, who's the offensive coordinator at TCU when they went to the national championship last season, who also happens to be the younger brother of Lincoln Riley. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And so far this season, Clemson offensively hasn't really been all that great to watch themselves. Their offense at best, sputters. And then defensively, we all knew that it was going to be a very, very big task for Clemson to replace Brent Venables. Brent Venables, during his time as Clemson defensive coordinator, made an argument for being one of the best assistant coaches in America. But when he left and took over at Oklahoma, Clemson defensively hasn't been all that great to watch either. So it brings up a very, very interesting question that needs to be asked and answered. Where does Clemson go from here? If you're Clemson, once again, you still have four games on your schedule, but I think it's pretty safe to say that it's time to start looking ahead to 2024. Your recruiting class, and will Dabo Sweeney finally decide to come around and start to use the things that have propelled other programs back into greatness? If you look around at college football right now, a lot of teams that have been the doormats of the sport for the past decade are finally starting to return to prominence. For an example, Nebraska right now, they are one win away from making a bowl game. And I know what some of you Nebraska fans are saying. Well, that's a far cry from what we used to be when Tom Osborne was the head coach. I hate to break it to you, but Tom Osborne is not coming back through that door saying, I want to be- return and become the head coach again. So you're, st- I'm not going to say you're stuck, but now you're with Matt Rule. He's your head coach. Miami, say what you want to say about Miami and Cristobal. They are better right now as a football team than Clemson. Florida State, what were they able to do? They were able to use the NIL and they were able to use the transfer portal and the coaching staff has made this team better. Jordan Travis is playing phenomenal right now at the quarterback position. Keon Coleman, who Florida State was able to get via the portal, has made an impact in that passing game for Florida State. And right now, he may be making an argument for the Belitnikoff Award. We'll get into that in the unpopular opinion segment of the show later on. It's just the teams that have been doormats in the sport are finally starting around the corner and using things that Dabo himself doesn't want to use. 
And I told you guys a couple of weeks ago that I believe Dabo Sweeney would rather retire than to conform to where college football currently is right now. And that's a very big and bold statement. But right now, looking at Clemson, I don't believe that that's a very, very ludicrous statement to make and to defend. Dabo Sweeney doesn't like the direction this sport has gone in the past few years. And I know you can sit back and say, well, this is what he signed up for as a college football coach. You know that things change from year to year, season to season, month to month, day to day, hour to hour. And Dabo has just had a hard time really figuring out where is his place in this sport. I believe it's pretty safe to say that in the next coming few years, whether it's next year, 2025, 2026, we may see Dabo Sweeney just step aside as Clemson's head coach. And the reason would be is because he doesn't like the direction that the sport's going. The 12-team playoff, the ACC finally getting rid of divisions. Dabo Sweeney is one of those traditional college football coaches. And he's slowly but surely seeing that the times are passing him by and he doesn't like where this sport is. But he is making Clemson become a shell of what they used to be because of his inability to conform to the sport in 2023 and where it's going in the years to come. So until either Dabo steps aside or he finally embraces the NIL and transfer portal culture that we're in, Clemson's going to continue to be where they are right now. And that's a middling football team that's better days seem to be behind them instead of in front of them. And to go back to the point that I made earlier about coaching, I'm not going to sit here and just continue to berate Garrett Riley, but he is a big problem here because Clemson brought him in and touted him as the missing piece to what they missed in 2022. We all knew Brandon Streeter wasn't going to get the job done as Clemson's OC in 2022. So you bring in someone like Garrett Riley, pay him a boatload of money, and yet this offense hasn't rounded the corner. Now, I was listening to Paul Feinbaum yesterday. He and Matt Berry do a college football recap on ESPN's YouTube channel. And he said in no uncertain terms that Dabble Sweeney and Clemson have been the most disappointing story of the entire season. I don't know if I can get on board with that. I think while Clemson has been a disappointment this season, I think the most disappointing story of the season has been South Carolina especially with all of the hype that was put on Shane Beamer after what they did last season. Not only did they beat Tennessee and knock them out of the playoff conversation, but they also beat Clemson. And a lot of people thought Shane Beamer had finally turned the corner in Columbia, brought the South Carolina Gamecocks back into relevancy. And we see them now this season, there are two and five and they won't make a bowl game. They won't make a bowl game unless they went out. That's the only way they win a bowl. But if they don't win out, then South Carolina would finish this season, in my opinion, as the most disappointing story of the 2023 campaign. But this is where Dabo is right now. And the sport is passing him by, and I really don't see anyone outside of Clemson, South Carolina, shedding any tears about that program. Because it's his inability to adapt on the fly that's caused Clemson to fall behind the times. And it's sad, but... It's the reality of the situation that we currently find ourselves in. So shifting gears from college football to the world of the NFL, college football wasn't the only thing that was crazy this weekend. The NFL was equally crazy as far as the games were concerned, injuries were concerned, officiating was concerned. So we're going to try to break down as much of this as we can. 
I want to start with the injuries. Now, we all know that injuries are a part of professional sports, not just the NFL. But yesterday was one of those days where, in general, quarterbacks felt the brunt of the injury bug. Kirk Cousins, the Minnesota Vikings announced that they've lost him for the season with an Achilles tear. Now you're going to have to go in another direction as far as quarterback play is concerned. Jared Hall is the only other quarterback you have on the roster right now. He's a rookie. Nick Mullins is on IR. He comes back next week, if I remember correctly. And there's been some talk about them potentially going out and getting some other quarterback that has worked with Kevin O'Connell during his time in Washington. So all those different things are at play for Minnesota right now. But losing Kirk Cousins, who arguably was the focal point of your offense outside of Justin Jefferson, that's a very, very big loss for a Minnesota Vikings team that for the past few weeks has seemed to have hit their stride. And it started with that win that they got last Monday night against the Niners, and they beat the Packers yesterday. And now that you don't have Kirk Cousins and you also don't have Justin Jefferson, a lot of people are wondering to themselves out loud, should it be in the Vikings' best interest to just go ahead and tank the remainder of the season and see what happens to them as far as the draft is concerned and free agency heading into 2024? And by the way, Kirk Cousins, who knows if he's coming back to Minnesota because he is a free agent once this season is over. So that has a lot to do with it as well. What type of teams would be in the market for Kirk Cousins, especially after coming off of an injury like the one that he suffered on yesterday? Then you have Matthew Stafford. Thumb injury against the Cowboys. Kenny Pickett. The Steelers lost him on yesterday after he suffered a rib injury. Tyrod Taylor, rib injury. He was taken to the hospital. But doesn't it seem as though, and I don't want to make a joke about this, but I also want to use this as a crutch to make my point. Doesn't it seem like every time Tyrod Taylor gets injured is because of his ribs? Now, remember when he was the quarterback of the Chargers, this was before Justin Herbert got the start and Justin Herbert eventually became what the Chargers looked for in a franchise quarterback. Tyrod Taylor was slated to be their starter. This was actually the year when Justin Herbert was a rookie. So Tyrod Taylor was about to receive a shot a few minutes before the start of the game. And I think one of the doctors punctured his lung or something like that. And he had to be rushed to the hospital or something to that effect. And he didn't get an opportunity to play. And that's why Justin Herbert eventually got the start. And we all have seen what he's been able to do in the league. But now Tyrod Taylor is the quarterback of the Giants. And he's replacing Daniel Jones, who's injured. And he gets a rib injury, and now he's gone. So it's just, when you think about Tyrod Taylor, you have to ask yourself, how many more bad breaks will he get before he ultimately can come and help a team win games? That's just a very, very sad situation if you're Tyrod Taylor. But quarterback injuries dominated the day yesterday. And we also saw a number of different injuries as well to a number of different players. Minka Fitzpatrick went out of the game yesterday with a hamstring injury. And that seems to be the big injury that has been going around the NFL here lately, hamstring injuries. These guys need to do a better job uh, stretching out their hamstrings before games. But anyway, I won't make light of that. As far as the games were concerned, I think it's pretty safe to say that the biggest game of the weekend took place out in Santa Clara, California. The Cincinnati Bengals played the San Francisco 49ers. The Bengals are coming off of a bye. And the San Francisco 49ers came into yesterday's game on a two-game losing streak. So obviously, the biggest question that had to be answered, which team will come out on top? 
And if you're the Cincinnati Bengals, you went into that game and you said to yourself, all right, we know that the Niners are on a two-game losing streak, so what is the best way we can neutralize San Francisco offensively? You do that by eliminating the threat of Christian McCaffrey and you zero in on Brock Purdy. And I'm not sitting here saying that Lou Amarello and his defense did exactly that, but they limited what Brock Purdy could do yesterday in the game. 22 of 31, 365 yards, one touchdown, and two interceptions. Now, if you look at Brock Purdy's stat line without watching the game, you would say to yourself, well, if he didn't throw those two interceptions, the Niners could have potentially won that game. But if you did look at his stat line and if you did watch the game, you could easily see why a lot of people today are asking themselves the question, is Brock Purdy elite? That's a question that I never decided to get into because I knew that we were going to have this conversation sooner rather than later when the San Francisco 49ers came crashing back down to earth. A lot of people today and for the few coming days, they are trying to tell you that, man, Brock Purdy, he isn't that guy in San Francisco. He's just another system quarterback that's benefited from Kyle Shanahan and this West Coast system. But isn't this like typical par for the course when you think about Kyle Shanahan? These quarterbacks, they come into his system, they start great, and next thing you know, they start to falter. We saw that with Jimmy G. Trey Lance never took off in this system under Kyle Shanahan, and now we're still having, or now we're starting to have questions about Brock Purdy. Now, I did tell you guys that I thought that Lou Armarillo was going to zero in on Christian McCaffrey. As far as the running game was concerned, they did that. 12 carries, 54 yards, he had a rushing touchdown, and in the receiving game, six catches, 64 yards, and one touchdown. I'm not going to be one of those people that's going to sit here and say, well, Brock Purdy didn't have Trent Williams, his left tackle, and he didn't have Debo Samuel. At the end of the day, if you are that guy, and if this team is still a well-rounded football team, it doesn't matter how many guys you're down. How many guys you have that's available to play is what's important here. And as long as you have enough guys on that offensive line to block you, and as long as you have enough receivers in the receiving game to catch passes from you, then you have enough. I'm not going to be one of those people that's going to harp on the fact that Williams and Samuel didn't play. Now, if you're Cincinnati, I think it's pretty safe to say that they've finally hit their stride. And it's becoming very weird with Cincinnati. They start the season off bad, then they round the corner and become a better football team. And San Francisco right now started the season 5-0. and Now they're 5-3. and Brock Purdy didn't throw an interception the first five games of the season. These past three games, I think he's thrown five interceptions. So that tells you everything you need to know about the direction that the Niners are about to go in. Could I say that this is just a blip in their season? Or would I be one of those people that would tell you that this is a sign of things to come? Once again, before a problem arises, there's always warning signs. Could these three losses consecutively for the Niners be the warning signs of potential danger up ahead? We'll have to wait and see about that. Speaking of danger up ahead, I predicted that the Kansas City Chiefs would easily take care of the Denver Broncos out at Mile High yesterday. And what ultimately happened in the process? The Denver Broncos took care of the Kansas City Chiefs. How did they do it? They kept the Kansas City Chiefs out of the red zone. Kansas City in this matchup had two, three field goals. That's how they scored their points. Three field goals. Once you keep Kansas City out of the red zone 
And once Denver finally starts to come alive offensively, that's the outcome that you could get. And I told you guys something, and I don't remember when I said it. I told you guys that it was going to come to a point where if Denver wanted to win football games, their defense would have to step up and they would have to be willing to go and battle in some low-scoring affairs. Because let's not forget, a couple of weeks ago when we saw this same matchup on Thursday Night Football, the Denver Broncos nearly won that game. But some things happened down the stretch. They didn't capitalize on the opportunities that were presented to them, and that's how they lost that game. Now, if you're Sean Payton, Everybody's been waiting to see when will you finally get your signature win as Broncos head coach. I think it's pretty safe to say that Sean Payton has finally received his signature win out in the Mile High City. Russell Wilson in this game, he was 12 of 19, 114 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. But let me tell you the biggest reason why I believe the Chiefs lost this game. First of all, the Chiefs lost this game because Patrick Mahomes should have sat out. There was a report that came out that the Chiefs added Patrick Mahomes to the injury report hours before the game because he was dealing with the flu, and yet he decided to play. And you could tell at various points throughout the game that Patrick Mahomes was not himself. And the second reason why the Chiefs lost this game is because of the reason why they've looked so lackluster at various points of the season so far. They don't really have any capable wide receivers to complement Travis Kelsey. Now, speaking of Kelsey... There was a lot of talk that was made after the game, after the Chiefs lost, that Travis Kelsey, Friday before the game, was seen at Game 2, or Game 1, rather, of the World Series between the Diamondbacks and the Rangers. And my simple solution to that problem is that if the Chiefs would have won yesterday, no one would have given a damn about Travis Kelsey attending a baseball game on a Friday. But because the Chiefs lost his game, now that's a problem. We all know that. We all know that if the Chiefs would have won and if Travis Kelsey would have put up his usual monster stat line, nobody would have cared about him attending a baseball game on his free time. But you give credit to where credit is due for the Broncos. And here's something else that makes this game a little bit more ironic. The two guys that were reported to be trade candidates for the Broncos, Cortland Sutton and Jerry Judy, both caught touchdowns yesterday. But if you're the Kansas City Chiefs right now, this goes to show you why you may want to get into the business of becoming buyers at the trade deadline because you need wide receivers. And I thought with you guys trading for Miko Hartman from the Jets, bringing him back to Kansas City, he would have been a much needed upgrade at the wide receiver position because Sky Moore hasn't really developed into the wide receiver you hoped he was going to become. Marquez Valdez-Scanlon has never really been a great receiver in my opinion. And you look at... They lost Justin Ross. He's on the commissioner's exempt list. And the rookie, Rice, that you drafted, he's too up and down for me to really believe that he can do anything of note in this Chiefs offense. But once again, if you are the Broncos, you finally got that signature win under Sean Payton. And if you're the Kansas City Chiefs, what happened? I think all of the NFL world right now is asking what happened. But I'll tell you who did hold up their end of the bargain. The Philadelphia Eagles beat the Washington Commanders 38-31. Let me say something about the Philadelphia Eagles. This is becoming a very concurring theme with them when they play the Commanders. The Commanders seem to play the Eagles very well. I remember they played earlier this season. You got to remember this game. 
It went to overtime, and the Eagles got the ball, and they scored, and they won the game, and Washington didn't do anything with their opportunity when they got the ball. You understand how that went? So now the Eagles are three and five. Remember, or not the Eagles, the Commanders are three and five. Remember when the Commanders started the season three and oh, and now they've just fallen off of a cliff since then. And we all thought Eric Bieniemy was going to come in, be this great offensive mind to save this team. And yet at some various points of the season, their offense hums at a great level and sometimes it doesn't. Sam Howell for the Commanders. 39 of 52, 397 yards, four touchdowns, one pick. Jalen Hurts, 29 of 38, 319 yards, four touchdowns, no picks. Then you go to A.J. Brown. Eight catches, eight targets, 130 yards, two touchdowns. This is the sixth straight game for A.J. Brown where he's had 125 or more receiving yards. And that was a record that was held by Calvin Johnson. You notice how quiet things have been. In Philadelphia, now that A.J. Brown is the featured receiver in this offense. But early on in the season when Devontae Smith was the featured receiver in this Eagles offense, A.J. Brown had a problem with that. You kind of see where this is going. But anyway, the Eagles took care of business in that game. And one of the biggest concerns that I had for the Eagles going into that game was the simple fact that Jalen Hurts was dealing with that knee issue. And it made me wonder, if you're Brian Johnson and if you're Nick Sirianni, how are you going to approach that game? Now, you really didn't do a lot of your usual tush push. Now, the only few times that you did do the tush push, you faked it out and you scored a touchdown on it. But you didn't really put Jalen Hurts in harm's way, and I think that that's the way it should be for that Eagles team going forward until Jalen Hurts returns to 100% health. And if you're the Eagles defensively, this is where my problem comes in. I know that the Eagles are having some injury concerns on that back end, but this is week eight. Every team in the NFL right now is having to deal with injury problems. You just have to evolve, and this team needs to do a better job of evolving around the injury that you have. And this next guy up, that's the mentality that the Eagles need to have. Next guy up. Who's our next guy that's going to step up? But I believe that if you are the Eagles, you may get busy at the trade deadline to bring in some added help in your secondary. Speaking of help, what happened to the Green Bay Packers yesterday? For the first time since 2005, the Green Bay Packers are 2-5 and five to start a season. So you got to go all the way back to the days of Brett Favre when he was the quarterback up there to find a worse start to a season compared to the one that they're going through right now in 2023. The Minnesota Vikings came into Lambeau And they took advantage of the fact that Green Bay don't really have a true sense of their own identity. Kirk Cousins was 23 of 31, 274 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. All of this was before he went out of that game in the fourth quarter with that Achilles tear. And Jordan Love, 24 of 41, 229 yards, one touchdown, one pick. Once again, another week, another opportunity for us to figure out or not what is truly going on with Jordan Love and this Green Bay offense. Once again, I told you guys last week that Green Bay's offense is too predictable, and until Matt LaFleur adds some more magic, some more pizzazz into this offense, they're going to continue to be one-dimensional. They're going to continue to be anemic. And speaking of anemic, Aaron Jones, seven carries, 29 yards. Green Bay as a team rushed for 74 yards. 
And Minnesota didn't do much better. They only had 62. This was a great win for Minnesota. But I also think that it's a very bittersweet win because you've lost Kirk Cousins. And if you're Green Bay, 2-5, and five, this doesn't seem to be going anywhere fast. And if you're a Packer fan, it makes you wonder, why were we in such a rush to move ourselves away from Aaron Rodgers? As I guarantee if Aaron Rodgers was still there right now, this thing may have been a little bit better than it has been so far. Then you go up to the Meadowlands and you take a look at that very ugly game that we saw between the Jets and Giants. 13-10 was the final and it took us overtime to get a final in this game. I got a stat for you. The New York Giants finished this game yesterday with negative nine yards passing. This is the second time in the past 20 years that a team has finished a game with negative net passing yards. And the Giants were involved in the other game, too. So it tells you a lot about the Giants and their passing attack in those two affairs that they've played in. So what did I tell you needed to happen for the Jets to win this game? Zach Wilson not making the big mistake and the Jets defense coming alive. And both of those things came true. Now, this game was ugly. It was raining. It was kind of windy, so you weren't really going to get the best results from either team. And especially from the Giants after Tyrod Taylor went down with that rib injury and after Darren Waller left the game himself with an injury. So we knew we weren't going to get the best product imaginable from either side. But once again, Zach Wilson took care of the football 17 of, well, in 36 attempts, he only completed 17 of them for 240 yards and one touchdown. Didn't really do a great job running the football. 58 total rushing yards for the Jets, 203 for the Giants. And Saquon Barkley, see, this is the thing. And let me explain to you what I mean, what I'm about to say. If the Giants had a competent quarterback behind center yesterday, behind that very disastrous and porous offensive line, the Giants could have won this game because Saquon Barkley carried the ball 36 times for 128 yards. Now, I know what you may be saying. 36 carries seems like a lot for a guy who's injury prone. But when you lose both of your quarterbacks, or if you bring in one quarterback and he's a rookie and he goes two or seven for negative one yard passing, you know, you're going to need to rely upon Saquon Barkley. See, this is the reason why you pay running backs, because you never know when you'll need them to step up in the absence of your quarterback. And the Giants had to find that out the hard way yesterday when Saquon carried that football 36 times. But yesterday was just a typical drag out fight between two teams going in opposite directions. If you're the Jets, right now you may be in the thick of the playoff conversation again, and if you're the Giants, you're just trying to figure out which basement rug you want because that's where you're going to be when the season's over, in the basement of the NFC East. And I want to wrap up my NFL recaps with the game that I talked to you guys about at the beginning of yesterday's pick episode. I told you guys about an epiphany that I had about this Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud matchup that we saw unfold yesterday. So the Panthers ended up winning the game 15-13. And in yesterday's episode, when I was speaking about this epiphany, I told you guys that if the Panthers lost this game, a lot of people would say that Bryce Young is a bust and that the Carolina Panthers wasted draft picks or they wasted a draft pick on Bryce Young and they wasted foreseeable draft picks on getting the draft pick so that they could go and get Bryce Young. If you follow me, what I'm saying, I hope you did. 
And the same thing potentially could have been at play if the Houston Texans came in there and lost to the Carolina Panthers. C.J. Strauss a bust. Those first few games were a fluke. Now he's come back down to earth. If you look at both of these guys and what they did yesterday, C.J. Stroud was 16-24, 140 yards, no touchdowns, no picks. Bryce Young was 22-31, 235 yards, one touchdown, and no picks. So I think it's pretty safe to say that Bryce Young outplayed C.J. Stroud yesterday. But I'm not going to look at that matchup and say that C.J. Stroud sucks. And I'm also not going to look at that matchup and say that Bryce Young has finally rounded the corner. Now, Bryce Young was able to do something that we've not seen a lot of quarterbacks be able to do so far this season against that Texans defense, and that's play a complete game at the quarterback position. Carolina, I will say, and a lot of people won't agree with this, but I think they played their best game of the season so far. 21st downs, they're 5 of 14 on third down. But besides that, they only had 44 yards rushing, 180 yards passing as far as net yards were concerned, 224 total yards passing. So I'll say this. Both guys have a great future ahead of them playing this sport. So we don't really know what both of these guys are going to look like three, four, five years from now once they are fully developed into the system that they find themselves in. But a lot of people are going to look at that matchup and they're going to overreact to it saying, see, this is the reason why both teams made very poor decisions at the quarterback position. And somebody's going to bring up the fact, did you see what Will Levis did yesterday against the Falcons? He threw four touchdowns. Here's the thing I have to say about that game. I predicted that the Falcons were going to win that game. And I talked about Young Way Koop being one of the best kickers in the NFL. But you didn't need him yesterday because the Atlanta Falcons didn't really do anything of note to bring out Young Way Koo if they needed him down the stretch. Tennessee won the game 28-23. Will Levis was 19 of 29, 238 yards, four touchdowns, no picks. Derrick Henry had 22 carries for 101 yards and no touchdowns. Atlanta made a decision yesterday at the half to bench Desmond Ritter. Now, it was reported that Desmond Ritter suffered from concussion-like symptoms, so... That's another big reason why you have to take him out of the game. But Taylor Heineke stepped in. He was 12 of 21, 175 yards, and one touchdown. Here's something I have to say. First of all, these are two teams that are going to have a quarterback controversy that they're going to have to answer in the coming days. Because if you're Tennessee, what do you do with Ryan Tannehill? Do you trade him at the deadline or do you keep him around? And if you're Atlanta, do you decide to send Desmond Ritter back to the bench and start Taylor Heineke? Or do you allow Desmond Ritter to pass through concussion protocol, bring him back into the fold? How do you manage that if you're Atlanta? Because the thing is pretty safe to say that Taylor Heineke played better yesterday than Desmond Ritter did. If you look at Desmond Ritter's performance before he went out, 8 of 12, 71 yards, and he was sacked five times. Tennessee overall was able to get the quarterback on the ground six times between those two. So all I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, is that it was a very wild game, but there are some questions that Vrabel and Arthur Smith are going to have to answer about their respective teams in the next few coming days, and we'll see how everything plays out. Now, I did tell you guys at the top of the recap that there was some conversations about officiating. 
And some of those conversations came from the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, the Steelers lost yesterday to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. And it was Deontay Johnson who came out after the game and voiced his frustrations with the officiating. This is what he had to say, and I quote, I don't care what nobody's saying. They cost us the game. They were calling some stupid stuff. They should get fined for making terrible calls. That's how pissed I am. They cost us the game. They must have gotten paid good today. Now, if you go and look at what he's referring to, there was a point in the game where Kenny Pickett was ruled by the officials to be short of the first down on a scramble that he made. They reversed the call, but there was there was a 10-second runoff after they reversed the call. And on the next play, Kenny Pickett was injured, and they were and there was no roughing the passer that was called. Later on in the game, Chris Boswell made a 55-yarder, but the Steelers were flagged for being offsides. Backs him up, and Chris Boswell missed a 61-yard field goal. And that was the Jaguars at that time when they were up 9-3. Is it safe to say that officiating has been one of the biggest problems for the NFL this season? I think it is. And until Roger Goodell finally comes around to seeing what NFL fans are seeing, there's no real way that it's going to be addressed. Now, Aaron Rodgers was on the Pat McAfee show last week, and he said the one best surefire way to make officiating better in the NFL is to make those guys full-time employees. But even if you make those guys full-time employees, will that really eradicate the problem? I don't believe so, because you're still going to have some referees going out there missing calls. That's just the way the way it is. But I share in Deontay Johnson's frustration, and there are going to be a lot of NFL fans who are going to say to themselves, why is he complaining? Put up more points, you would have won the game. But if this was your favorite team in the same position that Deontay Johnson was in, you would feel that the referee screwed you too when your quarterback went out of the game after suffering an injury and there was no rough in the passer call, and after your kicker had to be backed up five yards for an offsides call or a false start call, and he missed the following kick after making the previous one. Yes, refereeing has been a very bad problem in the NFL this season. But like I said, until Roger Goodell finally sees what the NFL fans are seeing, there is no real plausible way that a solution is going to be agreed upon. Because the NFL at the end of the day only cares about money. It's pretty safe to say they don't really care that much about player safety because if they did, some changes would be made on that front too. But the NFL is a money-driven business. And until the referees start costing the NFL money, there's no real way Roger Goodell is going to look at that. He can come out and give you all the word salad he wants to about the NFL is proactively looking into changing the way officiating is done in their games. 
But Roger Goodell doesn't believe half the BS that he spews in public forums. And that was a very wild and chaotic way to wrap up a wild and chaotic weekend of not only NFL action, but college football action as a whole. So sticking with football, I told you guys at the top of the show today that I was going to give you an update on Jim Harbaugh and the sign-stealing scandal that has taken college football by storm. Last week, we found out that the feds and the NCAA investigators were on campus in Ann Arbor to speak to members of the Michigan football staff and to get further information from various sources about the sign-stealing scandal itself. Now, Yesterday, before the NFL games kicked off, there was an article that was uploaded to NFL.com basically implying that if Jim Harbaugh thinks that he's going to escape Ann Arbor and come to the NFL so that he doesn't have to face the wrath of the suspension that may be coming down from the NCAA, he's sadly mistaken because in a statement by the NFL, they're saying that, you know what, if you come to the NFL to escape serving your suspension in college, we may make it to where you're going to have to serve that suspension here, and then you can go on and coach whichever team that it is that hires you. Now, there is no precedent for this before. There's no bylaws in the NFL rule book that would give the NFL or the commissioner sole power to do this. But there was one situation that set the precedent for this. And you got to go all the way back to 2011. After the NCAA investigated Terrell Pryor and Ohio State. Now, remember, Terrell Pryor was quarterback at Ohio State, and he was accused of giving away memorabilia for money and tattoos. The NCAA investigated that. Terrell Pryor got a five-game suspension, and Jim Trussell, the head coach up there at the time, he received a five-game suspension. Now, in order to try to skirt that five-game suspension, Terrell Pryor decided to enter the NFL draft, and the commissioner at the time, Roger Goodell, He decided to make it to where even once Terrell Pryor got drafted, he still had to serve that five-game suspension. And Jim Trussell decided to resign from Ohio State, and he became a game-day consultant for the Indianapolis Colts. Now, Goodell managed that situation a little differently. He decided to let the Colts decide what they wanted to do with Jim Trussell. And the Indianapolis Colts decided to suspend Jim Trussell for five games, and he came back for week seven of the 2011 season. So here's what I have to say about this. When you think about Jim Harbaugh and this science stealing scandal, if it is proven to be true that he had some kind of knowledge that this was going on, and if he even okayed this, then I think Jim Harbaugh should be man enough to stand in Arbor and serve out this suspension. And it, this is what bothers me about coaches. And I spoke about this a little bit last week, but I really want to add more context to it today. Coaches always speak about accountability how these players should hold themselves accountable when they go out and make a bad play, when they go out and have a bad practice, when they have a bad season, all of these different things that they want players to hold themselves accountable for. Coaches don't hold themselves accountable for the mistakes that they make. If I'll throw it to you this way, let's just say for the sake of argument, if I was coaching at Mississippi state, I'll use my home state for an example. Let's say if I was coaching at Mississippi state and one of my players was arrested during an off-campus altercation. He returns to the team, and I tell him that you have left a black eye mark on this Bulldogs program, 
So we're going to release you from the program. And let's just say around that same time, the NCAA starts to investigate my program because I've done some improper things as far as using booster money to do things that are outside of my purview. If I held my player to a certain standard of accountability for being arrested during an off-campus dispute, and if the NCAA comes back and if they suspend me for five games, why would I run to the NFL to try to run away from my suspension? That's just like when people run away from their problems. Eventually, you're going to have to come back and face those problems head on. There is no outrunning your problems. If you can't face those problems, then you shouldn't have put yourself in the position to where you ultimately have to deal with the problem, is what I'm saying. Jim Harbaugh created this problem by either himself okaying this or someone on his coaching staff okaying this for Connor Stallions to go out and buy all those tickets to damn near 40 college football stadiums and games. Now, Connor Stallions, I read yesterday he has been suspended with pay while the NCAA investigates this. Isn't that crazy? The man gets suspended and they're still paying him. You tell me in what real world is that right? But if you're Jim Harbaugh, you shouldn't skirt what's coming from the NCAA. And then there is still a real possibility that the NCAA isn't done looking into Harbaugh as far as that violating the COVID dead period restrictions are concerned. Remember when he bought the recruit, the cheeseburger and, That became a problem that the NCAA had to address, but Harbaugh and Michigan decided to self-impose him with the three-game suspension that he ultimately served and came back. The NCAA isn't done investigating that either. But once again, I will reiterate something that I've been reiterating for the entirety of the last week. I do not believe that Michigan is the only program that has done this. But what I do believe is that Michigan's negligence in how they've handled this has caused their accusations to come into the forefront further than any other program. That's where my difference of opinion comes into play. Other schools, they do this and they know how to get away with it. Michigan, on the other hand, did this out in the open and bluntly tried to skirt it by saying, you know what, we had no idea this was going on. Now, we know that college football is a cesspool of cheating and corruption. Because cheating and corruption has been at the forefront of sports ever since sports made its way into the American culture dynamic. You hell, baseball, what's the saying in baseball? If you're not cheating, you ain't trying. In college football, I guess that's the mantra now. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. So it's not surprising that the NFL has come out and has made this type of a statement that Harbaugh, if he tries to jump to the NFL to skirt His NCAA suspension, it won't work because he may still have to serve his suspension once he gets to the NFL. This is the reason why you don't do stuff like this. And then I thought about something, too, yesterday when I was prepping this show for you guys. At the beginning of this season, Harbaugh tried to preach that Michigan would become a beacon of accountability and all of the other things that coaches try to sell you on so that their program won't have to be targeted by the NCAA. They're going to try to do everything by the book. That's the phrase I was looking for. And yet we find out time and time again that Michigan does absolutely nothing by the book. Now, to my listeners that listens to to the Sports Court podcast up in Michigan, 
I know that you may be tired of these sports media talking heads coming after Michigan, but don't come after every other program in the sport. That's where I differ. Because I do realize, once again, that Michigan isn't the only program that's doing this. But what I also realize is that one time is an accident, twice is a coincidence, three or more becomes a pattern. Jim Harbaugh and what he's doing in Michigan right now is very much starting to become problematic. So we'll see once again what the NCAA decides to do in the next few coming days, weeks, and months. Because we know the NCAA, they work just like a turtle walks, very slow. The Big Ten and the College Football Playoff Committee may come up with a viable solution before the NCAA concludes their investigation entirely. And speaking of the CFP, the initial college football playoff rankings for 2023 will be out on Tuesday night. So we'll cover them as soon as we come on the pod for Wednesday's episode. So be on the lookout for that dropping in your podcast feed on Wednesday. So speaking of trouble, there is some trouble going on in Chicago. And the trouble has to involve their basketball team. So I want to go back to Saturday. On Saturday, the Chicago Bulls were playing the Detroit Pistons. And in this game, Zach Levine had the following. 51 points, 4 rebounds, no assist, 1 steal. He was 19 of 33 from the field. He was 6 of 8 from the free throw line. And he was 7 of 13 from the three-point line. Now, this is the first game for a Chicago Bulls player where they scored 50 points and no assist since Michael Jordan did it in a game against the Miami Heat back on November the 6th. Of 1996. And this game was also important because Dame, or not Damian Lillard, um, even though Damian Lillard may have a 50 point game one of these nights for Milwaukee, Zach Levine was a game time decision because of back spasms. So after the game, this is what was reported by Zach Levine about his injury, what he had to say to the media. And I quote, It's our third year here together. And we know how this business is. We all love each other. DeMar is one of my best friends, and we talk all the time. But we have to figure out how to make this work. So if you read into that, what it's basically saying is that DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine have not made this partnership work. That's the problem. Now, are we shocked? No. The the Bulls right now are 1-2. They're ninth in the Eastern Conference. And I'll tell you something. This is a continuation of what we saw from them last season. There was reports that had come out of Chicago last season that said that DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine, that partnership isn't really working the way in which it should. Now, of course, if you're the Chicago Bulls, it doesn't feel as though anything has worked ever since the days of Derrick Rose. And even you got to go way back to when the 98 team was there with Michael Jordan, Scotty and Steve Kerr and Phil Jackson was coaching. It's just it feels like there is something in Chicago that prevents this team from being where they're supposed to be. And even when you have something like Zach Levine scoring 51 points in a game against a very well-rounded Pistons team led by Monty Williams, it gets overshadowed because his, his on-court relationship or the on-court dynamic between himself and DeMar DeRozan isn't there. And I feel as though if you're the Bulls, that's the only way you're going to round the corner as a team. When those two guys can gel and mesh on the court, that's when you're going to see the fullness of what this team can be. But until then, you're always going to get this half 
I'm trying to find the word here. You're going to always have this half produced product. You ever you ever ordered something and when you see it on Amazon or eBay, it looks like a good product. Then when you get it in person, and you're missing a few parts that goes to it. It doesn't look the same. All that different stuff that goes into a product. But this is what we're getting from Chicago. They're not a well-rounded product right now. And yes, there's still, you still have time. You still have 79 games to go in the season. If you don't want to count that wacky playing tournament, but I'll leave that be. I don't really know where to go from here when I'm thinking about Chicago. I don't. They have good players. They just don't mesh. And that's the thing about being on a team. If the team doesn't jail, it doesn't matter how good the players are individually. If they can't bring all of their individual talents together for the greater good of the team, then what's the point? But that's the state of Chicago Bulls right now. One and two, ninth in the East. And it doesn't seem like this train is going to get turned around any soon, any sooner than where it is right now. So it is time for today's unpopular opinion. And today's unpopular opinion comes from a game that we talked about during our college football recap. And the game that I'm referring to was the game we saw on Saturday night unfold in Madison, Wisconsin, between the Badgers and the Buckeyes. After the game, Ryan Day said the following. I believe he's the best football player in the country. Now, the he that he's referring to is none other than Marvin Harrison Jr., Once again in that game, he had six catches on 11 targets for 123 yards and two touchdowns. And overall, so far this season, he has 48 receptions for 889 yards and eight touchdowns. So that brings me to today's unpopular opinion. Marvin Harrison Jr. is not the best player in college football right now. I think it's pretty safe to say that we don't know who's the best player in college football right now. Because every single week it feels like someone else steps up and takes that mantle of best college football player. But I would have to disagree with Ryan Day is not Marvin Harrison Jr. Now, is Marvin Harrison Jr. the best wide receiver in the country? I would give you that. But from a, from a statistical standpoint, he's not. Because if you look at someone like Malik Neighbors at LSU, he has 56 receptions for 981 yards and nine touchdowns. So from a statistical perspective, Marvin Harrison Jr. is not the best wide receiver in college football, but just from a pure talent standpoint, I would have to say that he is. But we all know that the best player in the country and the best player in football in general, no matter where you are, NFL, college football, high school football, middle school football, peewee football, whatever football you want to talk about, nine times out of ten, especially with how offensive-centric football has become here lately, the best player on your team nine times out of ten would be the quarterback now Kyle McCord for Ohio State he's not the best quarterback in the country and I don't think that Ryan Day expects him to be but to say that Marvin Harrison Jr. is the best player in college football in a in an era where the quarterback usually takes on the Heisman Trophy with the lone exception of 2020 when Devontae Smith won it in order for me to truly believe that Marvin Harrison Jr. is the best wide receiver in the country He would have to cook Michigan in the game that's coming up at the conclusion of the regular season. Ohio State would have to make it to the playoff. He would have to show up big there. And I think he would also have to win the Heisman Trophy. 
Now, once again, I don't want to contradict myself because the Heisman is a quarterback award. And nine times out of 10, the three finalists for that award that will go to New York to be at the ceremony will be quarterbacks. Unless for some unforeseen reason, one of the quarterbacks falls off the train and there is room in there for Marvin Harrison to come in there and be a finalist for that award. But I don't think that he's the best player in college football. Best wide receiver? Yes. But best player? No. But I get why Ryan Day said it. Let me not try to pedal past that point. I get why Ryan Day said it. Because he is one of your star players, and of course you're going to defend your team because Ryan Day's been doing a lot of that lately. Remember when he called out Lou Holtz after they beat Notre Dame for not being physical? Not physically imposing their will on their opponent, and Ryan Day got up to the press conference and said what he said about Lou Holtz? So one thing I can say about Ryan Day for certain is that he will go to bat for his team and for his players in a given second. In a split second, he'll do it. And that's what you respect about a coach that's willing to do that. We've gone through this entire show today, and I haven't once mentioned the World Series. Game three of the World Series will take place later on tonight. But if you go back and look at the first two games of the World Series, the Rangers won a wild game one. It was 6-5, and it took 11 innings to get that done. Also in that game, Alois Garcia set the record for the most RBIs in a single postseason with 22. And then if you look at what happened in game two, the Diamondbacks won that convincingly 9-1. And Cattell Marte set the longest postseason hit streak at 18 games. I'll tell you this. Although it seems to be a long shot, if the Arizona Diamondbacks wins the World Series, I think it's going to be Cattell Marte who's going to win World Series MVP. Because the way in which he stepped up for the Diamondbacks in the postseason, he's basically put this team on his back. Even when the pitching has been off, For the Diamondbacks, Cattell Marte and his hitting and the way in which he plays defensively, he is the, I wouldn't say he's the sole reason, but he's one of the main reasons why Arizona has made it this far. And even if they don't win the World Series, we may see an occasion like we saw in basketball back in 69 where Wilt Chamberlain won finals MVP, although the Celtics won the championship. We may see Cattell Marte win World Series MVP and the Diamondbacks may not even be the team that's hoisting the commissioner's trophy. So a lot of things are still at play for the World Series. I told you guys, once we found out that this was going to be the matchup, that I predict that the Rangers are going to win it in five. But I don't know. This series may go all seven games. And if you're Major League Baseball and if you're those suits that's in charge of this sport, you want this to go seven games. You want this series to drag out. You didn't get the two teams in there you wanted to get in. So to supplement for that, you want this series to go seven games so you can get as much money from this as you possibly can. That's where I believe this is going. But I'll stick by my original prediction, Rangers in five. Game three, once again, will be later on tonight. So it's time for the bold prediction segment of the show. We haven't done a bold prediction in quite some time, so we're bringing it back today. I saw Aaron Rodgers, and we all saw Aaron Rodgers yesterday in warm-ups before the Jets took on the Giants. He was throwing the football. And it seemed as though if you didn't know what happened to Aaron Rodgers, you would have asked yourself seeing him throw the football, what's wrong with him? And if somebody were to have told you that, oh, Aaron Rodgers tore his Achilles back in week one, you would say to yourself, it doesn't look like it. He looks like a quarterback that could go out and play right now. That's where the bold prediction comes into play. So my bold prediction for today, Aaron Rodgers will be back in time for weeks 16, 17, or 18 if 
Notice I put this in there. If the Jets have a chance to make the playoffs. I know what you may be saying to yourself. Wouldn't that be kind of selfish of Aaron Rodgers to only want to come back if the Jets have an inside track to make the playoffs? No. If the Jets don't have an opportunity to make the playoffs, you wouldn't risk bringing Aaron Rodgers back into the fold. You would just go ahead and play the season out with Zach Wilson. But if you find yourself in weeks 16, 17, and 18 with a chance to make the postseason, playoffs, postseason, same thing, it wouldn't hurt if Aaron Rodgers tells you that he's 100% fully healthy to put him out there to see what he can do. Now, hopefully by this point, the offensive line is a little bit better and Aaron Rodgers doesn't have to deal with another injury. But that's just something that I just thought about yesterday, watching Aaron Rodgers warm up with the team. He seems as though he could have played in that game yesterday, but you want to be cautiously optimistic about his recovery from that Achilles tear. And hopefully when he does come back, whether it's at the conclusion of this season, heading into the postseason, or whether it's the start of 2024, Hopefully, Aaron Rodgers still has some great football left in his career. And with all of that said, ladies and gentlemen, we have reached the conclusion of the show today. And it is time for the final verdict. And of course, there is no other story that I wanted to use for today's final verdict than LeBron's 20th anniversary of his first NBA start. So it was October 29th of 2003 when LeBron James made his NBA debut against the Sacramento Kings. In this game, LeBron James had 25 points, nine rebounds, six re- or nine assists, six rebounds, and four steals, but the Cavaliers ended up losing the game 106-92. Flash forward 20 years to October 29th of 2023. LeBron James, now with the Los Angeles Lakers, returned to the scene of the crime, Sacramento, to play the Kings. 27 points, 15 rebounds, and 8 assists in a 132-127 overtime loss that they suffered on Sunday or yesterday night. Now, a lot of things have changed since LeBron James first entered the NBA. A lot of players have come and gone. A lot of coaches have come and gone. We've changed commissioners. We've changed presidents. We've changed nearly everything in this life has changed except for LeBron James being an NBA player. And I wanted to use today's final verdict to bring up a point that sometimes gets overlooked by a lot of people who are so caught up in this LeBron James versus Michael Jordan debate. Regardless of how you feel about either one of those guys, both of their impacts are being felt not only in the NBA, but just in basketball circles in general. Because do you realize how many young kids today are growing up aspiring to be the next Michael Jordan? being the next LeBron James, being the next whomever it may be. But one thing is for certain. When you take a look around the NBA and you look at the 20 seasons or 20 years that LeBron James has been in the NBA, it's pretty safe to say that we're never going to see a career like this again. LeBron James is approaching 40 years old, and yet he is still going out there on a nightly basis, giving it everything he has. At the beginning of the season, the Lakers decided to put him on a minutes restriction. He decided two games into the season, that's not for me. I can go out and contribute at a high level with my teammates for as much time as it takes. And I think that that's the one thing that sometimes gets overlooked about LeBron James, his tenacity to still want to be a high-volume contributor for any team that he's on. And when you look at his career, it has had its fair share of ups and downs. 
when LeBron James led a Cavaliers team in 2007 to the NBA Finals, a lot of people thought to themselves, this team shouldn't be in the Finals, but LeBron James wielded that team to the NBA Finals. Yes, they got swept by the Spurs, but it was just the fact that he got that team there that mattered. And then when he decided to depart Cleveland to go to Miami, won two championships and decided to return home to give the city of Cleveland a championship. And after winning said championship in 2016, we all remember what LeBron said when winning that championship. Cleveland, I did this for you. And finally, a few seasons after that, departing Cleveland to go and play for the Los Angeles Lakers, donning that purple and gold, a staple of NBA history, playing for the Los Angeles Lakers. So regardless how you want to look at LeBron James's career, I think these 20 seasons of remarkable play from him kind of perfectly encapsulates the type of player that he's been, the type of man that he's been, and the type of legacy that he's going to leave once he finally decides to walk away from the sport. Because granted, a lot of people don't want to admit what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it. When LeBron James, when he decides to retire from the NBA, a lot of people are going to be sorely upset that there will be no more LeBron James. Now, if you're a fan of his game or if you're just a fan of him in general, you're going to be kind of disappointed that you are never going to see LeBron perform at a high level again in the NBA. And if you're someone that hates LeBron James, you're going to have to find a new player to hate because there will be no more LeBron James to hate on. So I think it's pretty safe to say that his impact will be felt even when he decides to walk away from the game. Now, I believe he's still going to be a part of the NBA because he's even mentioned on a few different occasions that he wants to own an NBA team once he retires. And I think that that's a very, very realistic expectation for someone like him. But 20 years, 21 seasons of remarkable play, four NBA championships, a number of different awards to go along with that. And yet he doesn't show any signs of slowing down. Ladies and gentlemen, to close today's show, I think what we've witnessed from LeBron James's career is greatness at its finest. Regardless of how you feel about his overall career, some of the decisions he's made, LeBron James exemplifies what greatness is. And when you're building a sports Mount Rushmore, unless you just have some type of pure hatred in your heart, there is no way you can build a sports Mount Rushmore without LeBron James because his longevity and what he's given to the NBA truly stands out. And all of this coming from a kid 20 years ago that was 18 years old, fresh out of St. Vincent, St. Mary High School, and he would go on to redefine the way in which we look at the NBA today and for the years to come. And that's going to conclude today's episode of Sports Court, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening to another brand new episode. Once again, we will be right back here again on tomorrow with Red Zone episode 15, where we will recap Monday Night Football, and I'll also give you my thoughts on Game 3 of the World Series. All of that, plus more of the top sports news from around the sports landscape will be on tap for that episode. So until then, ladies and gentlemen, go out and make today a great day. Stay safe. Take care. God bless. We are out.